Did they ever find the serial killer? You know, I don't believe so. Just another kind of free form rock and roll. Make you groove solo, maybe want to tap your toe. Just another kind of free form rock and roll. Make you groove solo, maybe want to tap your toe. Woo! Yeah! Woo! Yeah! Welcome back to Polkast, Polk's Ecology's official podcast. Tune in for new episodes each first and third Fridays of the month. I'm your host, Madison Fantosi. And I'm your co-host, Leah Bartholomew. Today, Professor of Art Holly Scoggins joins us to talk about her work, which has been described as a Southern Gothic memoir that leaves the viewer with something beautifully haunted. Scoggins was born and raised in a rural, abandoned cotton mill town in Western North Carolina. She received her Bachelor of Fine Arts in Painting and Drawing from East Carolina University and a Master of Fine Arts in Figurative Art and Painting and Printmaking from the New York Academy of Art. She has studied abroad in Italy and Germany, and her work has been exhibited internationally as well as regionally, most recently at the Polk Museum of Art. Scoggins currently serves as the Visual Art Program Director for the college. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Tell us some more about your upbringing. What inspired you to become an artist, and how do your experiences continue to influence your art today? So I had a lower, I guess a lower income upbringing in Western North Carolina. Uh, most of my family are all. Most of my family's uneducated. Never went to college. My mother did go to school for a short period of time. So I grew up really not seeing art as an option, not seeing art as a practical career path. Um, choosing art was sort of risky, but I knew it was it was something that I was passionate about and I loved. And I thought, if I'm the first person to get a bachelor's degree in my family, why not pick art? Just Take that risk. Right. Yeah. Did that kind of inspire you to become a professor and inspire others to pursue art, even though it's not viewed as the most lucrative or might not be the most lucrative path? I'll be honest. I s- stumbled upon teaching. I really had didn't have a desire to teach when I was in college. I really had a desire to be a set designer, a painter, an oil painter, an artist. Um, I even got into framing for a while, really enjoyed that. But I fell into teaching because of an opportunity at a at a gallery where I lived at in North Carolina. And once I did it, I was, I was hooked, but it took years to convince myself that that was really, uh, I was good at it. And I did inspire the students and I helped, uh, helped them in the classroom and out of the classroom. I think with, with my background being, you know, art not being practical, not really having the typical nuclear family and thinking about, you know, building a career in college, it was kind of an odd thing to choose art and to continue that path and become a professor. Um, and I, I think I ultimately chose art because it was the most challenging thing that I studied in school. For, for me personally, I, you know, I loved math. I loved business. I went for a business degree and never finished it, actually. Uh, I went to get a master's in business because I was, just, I was just obsessed with art, and art was this huge challenge for me, and a challenge in expressing myself, a challenge in craftsmanship and making so art especially painting was always the most challenging and I think that's why I chose it and then once I started teaching it it just transformed the quality of my life so art making is my passion and my love but teaching really fulfills fulfills me so when you were little was that like one of your favorite things to do did you always paint or was that something that happened like in school or something I get that question a lot, especially from students. They say, well, I'm just not creative or I'm not artistic. You must have grown up painting and drawing out of the womb, right? And um, I did. I was very creative and I wanted to make stuff. I had the desire to make things. I would build things and, 
I even crafted like a little world under my bed when I was a little girl. Like I would crawl under the bed and I would have all these miniature little dolls and chairs and kind of weird, creepy things that I that I like to make and draw. Um, I'm still a bit creepy, so it's okay. Um, but no, I, I did always have the desire to make, but I wasn't always the best at it. So when I went to college, I really felt like I was a, at a disadvantage when I entered my bachelor's degree. I was at a disadvantage. I didn't have a, a ton of art um, experience in middle school and high school. I had a had an an artist who mentored me as a as a child, but really in the school system, not a lot of support uh, for making art. I remember my high school art class had colored pencils, copy paper, tempera paint, and pencils and eraser. That was it. So I really was at a disadvantage uh, with what I was provided in the school system. So I really had every challenge against me about being an artist. But when I got into the college classroom, I realized that I had to work harder than everyone else to be really good at what I wanted to do with my life. And so my competitive streak came in and I just kind of competed my way. I would, and I, not, it's not always healthy, but I would compare myself to others and work really hard to be better and put more hours in. And really hard work is why I think I'm creative and artistic. You were talking about... Um comparing yourself like as an artist you were comparing yourself to other other people and stuff and that's sort of how you started so like were you like man I got nothing on Van Gogh <laughs> like who are you some of your favorite artists well I will tell you um I really had a sheltered life before I went to art school so um I really was only exposed to a lot of Christian art uh, that was hanging on people's walls my art teacher did show me some artwork and, you know, of course, the big names, Van Gogh and Monet, and I would see those paintings. But at home, I really just was surrounded by religious art. It's so I think that influenced me a lot. Mm-hmm. And so when I got out of that, of course, I revolted and I, against it. I was like, I don't want anything to do with that kind of work. Uh, but I think it's transformed me in a way that I can now make work that is religious or spiritual in nature uh, and speaks to a larger group of people rather than just to the demographic that that particular work wants to speak to. It's kind of shelters itself and only speaks to people who think like like that artist right right so i've kind of transformed that now that i look back you know 13 years later that's is what i'm th- yeah that's that's what's happened but 2010 i got a, a artist award to study in germany not really study but to to be an artist in residence there and just have freedom to paint and to work so when i'm traveling there i took a bunch of uh, magazines and, and readings with me on the plane. And one of them was about a story that I was excited to read about. It was a story, and I can't remember, I think it was in The New Yorker, or I think that was the magazine, but it was about the Long Island serial killer. So the Long Island, I was living in New York City at the time, and so the Long Island serial killer was not far away, right? And so I'm hearing about these women who are, are being murdered and dismembered, uh, in large numbers, and most of them are prostitutes, um, are women who 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 um, are in that profession. So, I'm reading about this on my way to Germany and thinking about what I want to paint. And because I've uh, been a victim of of violence, and uh, it was it hit home to me a little bit seeing these women's faces and seeing what's happening to them and knowing it's right around the corner from where I'm living. The city is bustling. It's busy. We're not really paying attention to what's going on. It's not really a huge concern to a lot of people, even though it was on on this 
magazine, it just didn't feel like there was this outcry for, you know, to know who these women were and what they what they stood for. So I read that article five or six times and and did some research and I decided to do a series on those at least start with those women, women who were murdered, um, whose lives were taken, and those women may have been in an unfortunate situation. Maybe they were were in a life of prostitution, or women who sold themselves through Craigslist. Uh, they were at a, a lot of them at a disadvantage economically, socially, just in a bad position. And so, I wanted to highlight the the identities of these women and focus on them rather than the killer. And so I decided to make a series of paintings that started with these women, and I focused on their portraits and intimate portraits of them. A lot of the portraits that were available of them online were very blurry. They were old family photos that were cropped and, and hard to see. And so what I did was, because of my knowledge of anatomy and I had studied painting portraits a lot, I decided to repaint them as detailed as I possibly could. And so I decided to make them these sort of intimate, detailed portraits of women who are forgotten or seen as not as important or not as valuable to our society. And I wanted to show to me that they're, they're made in the image of God just like anyone else. And I wanted to paint them in a sort of a, a intimate way where you'd be forced to get close to these women. So the Long Island serial killer murdered about 16 people uh, in the period of time. And so I, I started by painting some of those women, and it led to a full series of paintings of women who had been murdered. Now, were a lot of them unidentified, or were most of the people identified? Most you? of them were identified. I did. I have painted a few women that were unidentified. Um, I'd read about them, and they had pictures that they thought were that was that woman. And uh, so even screenshots, I had some screenshots that are not even screenshots. The uh, selfies that girls had taken on their own computers. Either they were talking to someone online before they met that person and they were killed. So I, I, my resource resources were many for finding these photographs. But most of the time it was painting them more realistically, more um, detailed than they even were in the photographs, make them feel more real, more there. That leads us into the next group of questions. You also have a series that features women who are still living, correct? Yes, I do. And so can you talk a little bit about that series and kind of what the different treatments and the patterns that went into those paintings, what does it all mean? So with the, uh, when a rose speaks to the grave series, which is the murdered uh, women portrait series, I would paint them very realistically. And then I would separate the viewer from them by painting a realistic piece of lace over top of their face so that you were separated from them. There was something delicate protecting their face. and you could only get so close to the portrait before the lace really kept you from learning more about about the woman, mm-hmm. about looking at her. So that series had this sort of veil in it uh, that separates the viewer from the portrait. But in the n- newer series of portraits of women, I simply decided to talk a little bit about mental illness with that series. And the series was inspired by the yellow wallpaper. And if you've read that, it's just um, a Victorian Gothic story about women's health. It's a feminist piece of literature about women's health and the healthcare system during the time. And in the story, the woman loses, uh, she's not well, and her husband, who's a doctor, tells her to lie down in her room. And so she keeps being told to lie down and to rest. But this room is filled with yellow wallpaper. These patterns are crawling over the wallpaper. 
And so the longer she lays there, the longer the wallpaper starts to speak to her and the longer that she starts to be absorbed by the imagery and the patterns start to crawl and they start to move. And it, she's supposedly losing her mind in this room by being told to stay here and to rest. Um, they've also proven, too, that that if this were the case, that the yellow pigment in the wallpaper would also have been toxic for her. And she would have that would have made her ill as well, just being surrounded by the color uh, because of where that color comes from in nature. It has some sulfur uh, formula in it, and so it could cause problems. But um, so this series came out of reading that the yellow wallpaper, the patterns crawling over the walls, and she's starting to to lose her mind a little bit. Uh, and there's a lot more to that story. But my series kind of comes from fear of mental illness because it runs in my family. And uh, my father suffered from mental illness and uh, had a a great aunt that was schizophrenic. So I, I kind of had that in the back of my head. I was always fearful of that. And I like to paint what I'm afraid of. And, of course, anyone's afraid of, of being murdered, right? People here are afraid of, of being mentally ill. So I, I painted that series, painted other women almost as self-portraits, young women my age. Uh, just like yourselves, I would I would photograph you, set you up, put patterns, project patterns on your face or your body, and photograph that, and then manipulate the photos in Photoshop and paint from those photos. So that's so the series was just women, friends, acquaintances that I'd met since moving to Polk County, and I made a newer series, a series that I felt spoke to people more now as opposed to and brought people in more than separated them, like in the murdered series. That's a cool juxtaposition, though, like. First, you're going to keep like a wall there and now you're trying to pull people in. Yeah. And the criticism that I've gotten from those paintings is that they do sort of suffoc The paintings feel a bit suffocated, like the viewer can't really insert themselves into it and engage. It feels very disconnected. And I some of that's intentional because I my work, I do believe my work has a southern gothic feel. And I do like that kind of um, deadpan look kind of separating the the subject from the viewer. So. I'm okay with that criticism. Yeah. yeah. Is there um, color in the series? Like, do, does color play a part in, like, who the person is? Yeah, I think most of it is aesthetics. Honestly, it's formal a formal decision. I look at the person. I look at the colors. I look at which I, I experiment with which patterns or designs will look best projected on that particular person's skin tone and which images seem to be crawling over the skin the most mm -hmm. like the yellow wallpaper so mm -hmm. i'm choosing it based on a few different things and the colors uh do have a lot to do with the skin tone and and hair color of the person that i'm painting cool yeah. can i go back to the uh when a rose speaks to the grave when a rose yes. speaks to the grave it's my favorite that comes from an epitaph by the way if you're wondering why i called it oh that. very so cool i throughout my life i've frequented graveyards which seems a little odd but uh since i was a child i had a graveyard right beside my house so i spent most of my childhood just kind of hanging out there it was like right next to the park so sometimes i would take naps there under the tree or i would hang out and say hi to everybody okay creepy lady it was creepy. <laughs> cool. yeah but I did. so anyway i've always had this kind of fascination with memorializing you know people who have passed away and especially writing and southern writing that goes along with that so i've recorded a lot of epitaphs for or epitaph being the writing that's on the gravestone especially in the early 20th century some really interesting writing so when wrote when a rose speaks to the grave comes from a longer epitaph of a, a young girl who died very cool so do you paint their portraits and then you go over it with the lace texture 
So with that series, yes. So I completely paint the portrait, which is also quite uh, painfully therapeutic for me because I'm painting them these portraits so detailed and I'm trying to paint every single plane of their face and make them look re- realistic. But then once it dries, then I paint the lace over top and I really paint it in a way that I don't, I don't always know where certain pieces of the fabric are going to land. And right. it's my way of almost not burying the woman, but sort of going through that process of, of realizing that a, li- a real life was lost. And just the minor effort that I put into painting compared to a life is nothing, but it, it's sort of representative of that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think I would find it hard to, I really like that description because I think I'd find it hard to like paint this beautiful detailed thing and then go over it and not know if it's going to go over like it would a part hurt that a I'm lot. really. It would be a painful decision a lot of times yeah, to do that. Yeah. that. But I mean, that's what also makes the piece like so awesome at the same time. Thank you. Yeah. I think all my painting is conceptual. The idea comes first and the painting comes later. Yeah. And and that's important for me. I have a hard time justifying making something if it's not uh, expressing a worldview or at least communicating or helping a group of people or telling a story. I have a really hard time creating just for creation's sake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do remember the fact that I am compelled to make work that's in me to do that. So I do honor that. Like I have this, I'm compelled to create. So I do create, but a, a lot of times I make it a bit more methodical and you know, have the idea first and the painting later. Very cool. Will you tell us what you're working on now? Absolutely. So I've made, I've been painting women with patterns over them for, gosh, eight years. And in a scheme of an artist's life, that's not a long time. But I feel like in our world where things move so quickly, life moves so fast, and we're so motivated by imagery that I felt I felt the need to make a new series and to and I had kind of burn out a little bit on making those because they are so serious. But but then I realized that I jumped into an equally serious topic. Uh, so I guess I just can't help myself. <laughs> but so after the portraits and I'm still making the portraits, they're still a thing. But I uh, decided to make a exhibition of paintings called Fearful Symmetry, which was uh, inspired by writings of William Blake. Uh, specifically the poem uh, Tiger, Tiger. He talks about tiger and who made the tiger and why does the tiger exist and why is he a dangerous tiger? And it's really mostly alluding to uh, why would God create something so violent and so beautiful? That's really what I take from the writing. There's a ton of interpretations, but for me, I take why on earth does something exist that's so gorgeous, that's so beautiful and so breathtaking and also could take your life in a matter of seconds. And so. Obviously, writing influences a lot of what I'm painting, and this was another one of those things. And I, I made this series in an interesting place in my life because the museum contacted me about a solo show, and I agreed to it, but I didn't know what date they wanted the show. And then they said, oh, it's soon, like, like six, four months from now. But okay, let's, let's do this. And so I'm looking at my life, and I have a, a very young son, uh, not even a year old yet. And I am busy taking care of him and working full time. And I thought, how am I going to do this? And I realized that it's important making work, even though, yes, I'm a mother. That's number one responsibility, mother and a wife. But this is why I'm on this planet. And I need to show my son and my my family that I'm going to pursue these dreams. I'm going to show my son that 
when you do pursue your dreams and you do put your heart into something and you uh, make what you know you're here to make or do what you know you're here to do, you really can change lives and help create culture and uh, create dialogue and, and learn. And, you know, I want him to pursue his passions as much as I do. So that's, that was, it was an, a weird spot to be in to say, I could have said no. Yeah. I don't want to make new work. I don't, I need to take care, care of my son. Call me in a year. Right. So instead, um, I decided that I would do it. And between September of 2017 and January of 2018, I made nine large new paintings. And I painted faster than I've ever painted. Wow. I allowed myself to be loose and to be quick. I could spend up to 70 hours on a portrait. Wow. One portrait, like 16 by 20 inches. So. I allowed myself, you know, 20 hours is enough on this painting. Wow. 12 hours is enough on this painting. Some of them still took 70 hours. But, but, uh, you know, lots of late nights and my son in this little bouncy chair next to me while I'm painting and I have the fans going. So every, you know, the air quality is good. It was was tough to get it done, but I got it done. And I... um, Felt very vulnerable putting up work that quickly that I that I had to figure out why I'm making it, what it means, what it's going to look like very quickly and get it up on the wall and have a solo show. But I love a challenge, as I said before. So I did it. And the new series is simply juxtaposing a vintage image, some sort of old photograph of children or of women um, and putting it with something that has this uh, dangerous tone to it. So it might be fire with with young women walking through uh, a street hand in hand. So you may see these two images, almost like a double exposure in photography. And that's what I created digitally. And I used open source photos and I would manipulate those photos and use my own photos and make these, these sort of what I call the innocence layer and the experience layer on the canvas. So one image is showing innocence, children, something you don't know, and something and the next layer is experience, showing something dangerous like fire or a lightning storm. Uh, something that's that's has it creates this perilous undercurrent for the work so is the experience layer often something to do with light yes okay absolutely like so, always always uh, light. yeah it usually is light it will be light will be there so most of the time it's fire i have a, a personal story associated with fire that has kept me sort of interested in it my whole life reading about fire painting fire uh you know, I love, I love fire. I love the way it looks. And um, actually, I'll tell you the story because it's really, it's really interesting, uh, scary, but interesting. So when I was seven years old, I uh, was going through, it was late at night. My mom was driving. It was me in the back seat, And we're driving through this tiny town. There's almost no houses around this area. It was dark. It was quiet. And we're driving through the woods. It's kind of hill, hilly in this area. So we're driving up and down. And my mom says, um, do you see that? And I looked out the window and I saw a fire. And I said, yeah, wow, what is that? She's like, let me slow down. So she slowed down and we realized, I didn't realize at the time, but my mother realized that this was not good. So there was a fire and there were people dancing around a fire. And I was very mesmerized as a child. I was like, wow, mom, this is so beautiful. Look at these people. They have white robes and there's flames in between them. It was so scary. It was horrifying when I think about it now, but it's real. It was real life. And so what I was viewing was actually a Ku Klux Klan meeting in this town. So my mom pulls me off to the side and she said, babe, you're young, but how did you feel when you first saw this? And I said, oh, I thought, I think it's beautiful. 
she said, well, a lot of things that are bad for you are beautiful. And a lot of things that you're attracted to, they will be beautiful. But you need to know why this is not beautiful. This is very, actually quite scary and horrific and terrible. And so I, of course, we sat there for a while. We had to turn the car off and sit there very quietly, which was also very scary. Once I knew what I was watching and my mom told me all about it, she said, this is not right. This is not okay. She was very clear about that. And, but you need to know what you're seeing. And this is the real world that you live in. And at a young age, I learned very quickly that things that are beautiful that I'm attracted to, there might be a bad side to it. And so that memory, and there's a couple others with fire, but that one, that one really triggered a lot of artworks that I've made over the years that not a lot of people know about. And that sort of source of fire is beautiful, but it will burn you. As simple as that is, God, how could you create something so dangerous that's so beautiful? Just like the tiger, right? So that was really the source for creating the series of paintings is confronting, showing children or showing someone doing something in innocence and then showing the experience of the reality of, of what could happen from that. That's very cool. Yeah, it's, it's a tough topic, but it's somebody's got to talk about it. It's a real thing. It's the real issue. Yeah. Yeah, especially so I in the, to the woods of it. North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're I mean, isolated. But... They, they're isolated. And even today, that area where we saw it, it was could probably still happen. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people would say anything. Yep. Yeah. Real sad. Yeah. But I choose, it, I have a worldview that I want to express, and I choose my paintings to do that. And so I'm hoping through creating artwork that that's a way I can help change culture and make people aware of their own prejudices or um, you know, even work through my own, right? right. Of any, any other, you know, any situation. So. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Where can people go to see your work? Um, currently, uh, you can, if you want to see it in person, that's tough because I don't have an exhibition up right now. The, the solo show came down early uh, in the spring um, and I'm working on new paintings. I'm currently working on a exhibition here at Polk State College. Uh, that is nonviolence in nature. So it's the One Billion Rising exhibition that will happen in uh, February and March of next year. And I'm gathering a few artists, uh, and the show is going to be a call for nonviolence. So talking about nonviolence, violence against women, violence to get against anyone in general, but really just champion, championing nonviolence and creating an, an art show from that. So I'm hoping to have some of my own paintings in that, uh, probably from the murder series, because it relates so heavily. Right. And... Um, I'm making a giant mural for uh, the Tapestries Project, which is through the Working Artist Studio in Lakeland and the city of Lakeland. And so I'll have a large mural up on view by November. Yeah. So you could come to the Tapestries opening in November, uh, which is uh, 60 tapestries, 60 murals will be hung, and mine will be one of them. And four Polk State alumni and students will be there as wow. well with artwork. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. And since everything we do here at Polk State is for the students and about the students, where can listeners see some of the artwork that your students have worked on? You can see the student artwork up now in the gallery till the till December, till the school close closes. The show is open from 10 to 2 every day in the Winter Haven Gallery. And the student exhibition showcases paintings, drawings, designs, prints, photos, sculptures, ceramics, all of all of those categories of art and our awards are sponsored by AOE Art Supply in Tampa. So those students are very excited about receiving prizes and art supplies and we also give out a scholarship uh, for this exhibition. 
And our show will be judged by Alexander Rich from Florida Southern College. Very cool. Well, now you guys know you can look and take Holly's class. And she loves graveyards and fire. And well, I do have a sense of humor too. So I'm not always so serious. But so, you know, if you were to take one of my classes, we would not be talking about all of these topics. But what I do like about um, art in general, taking any class, especially design, students who take design, you know, we're learning how to make stuff. It's not always about why we're making it. But what's really cool about design is that we do. I do try to encourage students to add meaning to what they're doing. And through learning technical skills, how to make something, craftsmanship, all of that, they're learning, you know, how could this mean something to me or to someone else, to the viewer? And we work through that a little bit. And we occasionally touch on on some topics, right? Art is interdisciplinary. So it touches right. and talks about all other disciplines. And that's what's, we're kind of that neutral zone where we can express ourselves and design and create and talk about those things that maybe other people aren't comfortable talking about. But, uh, but yeah, we're not going to visit graveyards in my class or anything like that. We'll just, I mean, we'll just learn to paint, learn to draw and talk (laughs) about, talk about, um, you know, what's good art, what's bad art and how we decide those things and how we make culture. Yeah, that's awesome. And we'll definitely um, have some links below where you can see some of Holly's artwork. And sounds good. Hollyandscoggins.com. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Polecast. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah.